Hi there and welcome to Tailfire's Influence Lab. We've uploaded all the audio recordings of our courses here, but for the full experience, please head to learn.tailfire.com. Thanks and enjoy. So, welcome to the Influence Lab. Uh, as you might have guessed, this is where we will talk about influence. We will try to go a bit deeper to define what influence is, how it moves people, and what it means to our guests. Our first guest is Rob Norman. He is the former Global Chief Digital Officer of Group M. He's now on the board of several different startups and different companies. He is an advisor to BBC. And last but not least, he has amassed almost half a million followers on LinkedIn. Did I miss anything? Uh, no, it's only 442,000, so I wouldn't want to exaggerate. Okay, but it's close. <laughs> it's close. Uh, when you look back at your career, is there any part of it that you enjoy the most? Oh, gosh. Well, if I'm honest, I enjoyed two phases more than anything else. In the mid-2010s, I was able to travel the world, which was fabulous. I was able to meet people from every imaginable industry and culture and geography i was treated like a prince by the airline industry which had a certain charm although i don't miss it and i was able to spend a lot of time writing useful thought leadership and then packaging it up and presenting it around the world and it was a real thrill to be able to do that it's a really privileged situation to to be in the other time that i really enjoyed on reflection, because I don't suppose I enjoyed it that much at the time, it was in 2003 and 2004 when, rather against my will, I was asked to run one of our operating companies in the UK that had not done terribly well after a merger. And simply by finding half a dozen people inside that company that were not prepared to go down without a fight or even go down at all and helping them unlock their potential. They then turned that business round and we turned a very poorly performing business into a superstar business. And that was a fantastic uh, feeling. And although it was very, very painful uh, when we first arrived to do that, especially as I recall, we lost our biggest client in the first pitch that I was in charge of. So that wasn't a great start, but the, but the end was good. Looking at your career, do you see any patterns when it comes to what gives you energy? Well, I've come to believe that if you go to work interested, then your day is likely to be interesting. And so I've tried all of the time to be interested in what I do, the people I do it with, the people I work for, the context of what I do, 
and always tried to extract something interesting from everything I did. And when I started, uh, I was a part of the information worker class. And that was a thing back then, because when we thought about what being an information worker meant, it meant it was different from being a manual worker, which means we didn't work in factories or construction sites. And of course, that in turn, generations before, was different from being an agricultural worker. But I arrived at the cusp of personal computing. So before the internet, but the cusp of personal computing. And so was the first generation to go from not having a computer on our desk to having a computer on our desk, which happened during the time of my first job. And it became pretty clear at that time that machines were going to get very, very, very good at the information thing and do it at speeds that we couldn't have done before because there was no need for us to have graph paper and, and multicolored pens to draw TV rating graphs after a while. And so what that meant was that instead of being an information worker, the people that succeeded were the ones that became intelligence workers that said, it's our job to look at this information that we can now produce so much more quickly and extract meaning and value from it. Now, of course, we're in this new world where a lot of the intelligence that humans use to apply is actually being executed by program machines and programmable uh, systems are a key to the way we do our job in advertising and many other areas. So the question then becomes, do you choose to work against those machines? Do you choose to work for those machines or do you choose to work with those machines? And I think most of us would argue that we'd like to work with those machines because it should help us do something better. So if the information is taken care of and a significant part of the intelligence is taken care of, my sense now is that the people that apply imagination, the third eye after information intelligence, are the people that are going to be most successful. So when I look at the companies that I work with, including Taylorfy, but others besides, what I try and do is work with management and teams to unlock their imagination about what it is they're trying to do and to make the greatest use of the foundational technology that allows us to do our work. And I mean, there are some people in the world who, I guess it's a weakness to have been part of that old age where you didn't have a computer. Do you, do you think it's been an advantage for you in your career to have been through the whole transition period? Yeah, I'm better at mental arithmetic and anagrams than almost anyone I know. <laughs> and well, which is useful because, I mean, I don't say that trivially and I, that, I mean, it sounds like I said trivially. The reason why it's important is that if you're really good at that, what you can do is you can look at rows of numbers and rows of process information. And whilst you can never produce the row, the skill at looking at the numbers is knowing which one's wrong. Because it's pretty easy to say, oh, 988 lines of these thousand lines are right. Finding the half a dozen or so that might be wrong is a kind of different skill. So if you actually have a mind that picks up patterns and can tick things, and I think it's harder uh, to do that now unless you've actually crunched things with pencils and pieces of paper, and the same with language. So being able to do word puzzles and anagrams actually comes from the time I did that, and being able to spot things that are wrong in the structure of arguments and the structure of questions is quite a useful skill. So actually, I'm quite glad that I didn't 
do that, uh, which is why now I try very, very hard when I'm struggling to remember something. I go a long time before I Google the answer because mm. I would rather extract it from my own memory than uh, just find the answer. It's a waste of time but in the short term, but I think it's a very valuable use of time in the long term. But you, you've been through a lot of change in the media uh, industry. Mm. And what hasn't changed over the last 34 years? Well, uh, people still respond emotionally to messaging. They still respond at least to a degree to the environment that the messaging is in. They respond to not just the message, but in the context of the message, they also respond to the carrier of the message. But what they respond to has changed and evolved. And I posit who they respond to has changed and evolved. And when I grew up in the business, you could pretty much associate any endorser or any celebrity with the brand they were famous for. Sometimes there were many of them, and you would know which sportsman was the Gillette guy and which one was the Ford guy and which woman was the L'Oreal hair care lady and who was the Dior perfume. I mean, sort of kind of everybody knew. And the people that did that were either, were generally speaking, chosen because they were famous in some field or other that had the respect and admiration of people in their audience. And so the kind of literal thing was the actors and actresses were the default because people sort of admired the silver screen heritage of, of Hollywood. And of course, sports stars were also great endorsers. You go down the list of all the people that have endorsed a Rolex watch over the years, all the people that have endorsed uh, a Gillette razor over the years. It's kind of pretty easy to understand how that, how that goes. But, but maybe the, the biggest change in that world since when I started and now is a f comes from a phenomena, which is that media and content and by extension audiences and by extension influence have become much more granular than they were before. And we've reached this sort of Andy Warhol moment of everyone in the world will be famous for 15 minutes, which people thought we'd reached a while ago, but we've really got there now because you can be famous, but you don't have to be famous to everyone. All you have to do is to be somewhat famous to the people you're trying to influence. And the rise of Instagram in particular, but YouTube, obviously, and also TikTok, uh, I think of as the, the sort of three main areas in, in, in the, and Twitter in a kind of different way, has allowed what by the standards of celebrity, as we understood them when I started in the business, in which you would count dozens of famous actors and actresses, maybe dozens of famous sports people. There are now many, 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 many thousands of significant influences because all significant means is enough to reach an audience that can make a material difference to my business, either on their own or as an aggregated group with other people. So the biggest change in media since I started is the granularity of media 
and the democratization of both access and influence. Mm. And there's an argument that the brands with the deepest pockets in the past, they were the only ones who could get access to celebrities and influencers. Do, do you think it's easier for a startup or someone who ha doesn't have a lot of money to become yeah. influential and big as a brand by using influencers? Well, well so, the, so the access to celebrity is a kind of downstream issue because it was only those brands that could afford access to television. That was the key to it. And so unless you had the audiences that are available to you on television and the huge cost that went with that, the way you extracted value from that cost was by deploying an incredibly impactful creative asset, which from time to time would have actually been human. It would have been some kind of celebrity. So the two things sort of went together. So that's the undemocratic version of media in the only big people get access to it is the same thing as only big people get access to those kinds of um, celebrities. So now it's no easier than it used to be, except with one unusual use case for small brands to get access to celebrities. But what it is eminently possible to do is for smaller brands to get access to people that are extraordinarily influential at some scale or other that is both affordable and relevant to um, that client. So the obvious question is, what's the exception that smaller brands get access to celebrities? And I point you no further than a brand like Vitamin Water or Beats by Dr. Dre. And those brands, when they were small, what they did was they gave sports stars and music stars equity in those businesses in order to become brand investors. And many of them made a great deal of money. Um, in some cases, tens or hundreds hundreds of millions of dollars when, for example, vitamin water was sold to the Coca-Cola company or Beats was sold to Apple. And those are quite interesting stories about brands that persuaded both with the nature of the brand itself, but also with uh, the equity incentives of pretty interesting people to get on board with brands. Well, if you looked at it in a normal sense, say, look at the size of the vitamin water brand, how do you get Kevin Durant, for example, superstar baseball player, and uh, and also the star of Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler, it's a bit of trivia recently, uh, to do that, then you do it with equity. And Durant will happily tell you that he made a fortune. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few uh, who's made a fortune on the back of influence today. Well, you have, but, the, but what you have to do if you're the brand, you have to persuade the influencer that the combination of what you're doing and what they will do for you is going to be a pathway to those kinds of riches because you can't persuade someone to do that for any amount of equity if you can't convince them it's going to be successful. Yeah. And we have talked about influence many times, uh, mm. but uh, I don't think I have asked you before, what, what does influence mean to you personally? Well. I, I, I kind of had a feeling you'd ask me this. And I suppose influence in the commercial sense is the leverage of some combination of celebrity, authority, relevance, and relatability. It's some combination. So celebrity is someone who is well-known for something. Authority is someone whose opinion you would trust or value 
about something. Relevance is that opinion is in the category that the brand said, and relatability means that I can feel some kind of connection, personal or otherwise, with that person. And so those are, I think, the four pieces of influence. And they will vary in degree, but it's the activation of those, which I think is where the, at the heart of the influence economy. Do you follow influencers? I, I, I'm sure I do. Um, whether or not they would self-describe as influencers or not is a whole different thing. So do I follow Scott Galloway? Sure. I mean, he's now, Scott Galloway in my world is an influencer. Do I follow Ben Thompson and Benedict Evans and Matthew Ball.vc? Absolutely. So in my world, those people are influenced because they affect how I think about certain categories in business. If you think about it sort of, do I follow, which I, I'm so that's a fake answer to your question. So the real answer to your question is, do I follow any influence about other things? Like, do I follow influences about clothes or travel or cars? Or then the answer is no, I don't think I do. Um, but I suspect in the same way that when you ask people, are they influenced by advertising? Almost always they say no. Yeah. until you really dig at it and it turns out well of course you are then i guess the answer to the question is yes but i'm just not conscious of it and then you find a few exceptions as you're talking you think well there's a blog called the points guy which is the nerdiest blog you can imagine about frequent flyer programs and it talks to you about how do you optimize both the collection and the spending of frequent flyer points. Now, that's gone beyond being one person because it's now a kind of little business of it, its own. But am I influenced by it? Sure. And uh, that's very specific and domain-like. I don't have many kind of tangential influences, I don't think. But if, if we, let's not limit it to social media influencers. Oh, okay. Do, do, do you have anyone in the past that have has been a strong influence on you or gosh well i say this is the answer to a lot of questions my first significant job and actually the job that i had that became the only job i had for the next 30 years was working for a man called chris ingram and he had a media agency called chris ingram associates which you'll be delighted to know was always referred to by the acronym of, of, of CIA. And I joined as a junior media assistant at uh, CIA and when we, and then was on the board of the company when we sold it to WPP, whatever it was, uh, 15 years later. And Chris was a hu huge influence on me. He taught me the business. He taught me how you should behave in the business. He taught me what competitiveness meant, but, what it meant to be decent whilst being competitive. Uh, I've always thought there was competitiveness, ruthlessness, and mendacity. And competitiveness is great. Ruthlessness is sometimes required, and mendacity is to always be avoided. And whether Chris Edwards said those words to me or not, I don't think he did, but that's what it meant to me. He also taught me a lot about how to think about real market opportunities and distinguishing real market opportunities from apparent market opportunities and 
made one statement that sticks with me forever, and many of my business associates have heard me say it when Chris was being, we were all being presented with a proposition by a, a media owner who said that he saw his medium fitting between here and here in the marketplace. And Chris said, I agree that there may be a gap in the market, but I'm not entirely sure that there's a market in the gap. And so I learned a great deal from Chris, which all amounts to, in the end, critical thinking, in the end. So I was hugely influenced by him. And I was very lucky because I met some amazing people on the client side of the business, and they would be surprised now if they heard me say that I was influenced by them. But there's a man called David Christopher at at and who asked the best questions. I ever got asked by a client. I mean, really, really terrific questions that made you think profoundly about what you were doing. And so those people were big influences in my, in my career. What do you think made you listen to them more than other people? They tended not to waste. It was almost like they treated words and conversation as a fairly precious commodity and realize that every time you got into a conversation that was a business conversation, that you kind of set a frame for that piece of the conversation and you removed pretty much anything that was extraneous to the purpose that you were trying to get. And they were very precise people who, but not domineering. So it was never, I want this, now go do that. It was always how do we go about either capturing this opportunity or solving this problem and providing very good frameworks for the way discussions would then go. And I've always admired people that could set parameters that unlocked creativity and purpose in other people. So if you can do it and set parameters as a way of enabling people, as opposed to kind of closing off other things. So some people want to put things in a box and no one can talk or, or move within that box. But the people that create frameworks that allow other people to be uh, expressive in a valuable way are very important. And <clears throat> we were in a call just an hour ago and you talked about uh, inviting, you, if you could invite four people to a dinner, who would it be? Have oh, you gosh. thought about that yourself? Well, um, for those people who are not listening in real time, which no one is, uh, the hour ago was at nine o'clock on a, a Wednesday morning from Scandinavia connecting with the East Coast of the United States. And we were talking about how to structure workshops. And this, this, this conversation um, came up. If it's a kind of living or dead person, for some curious reason, the person I most wanted to meet was a person called Anthony Burgess, who won't mean a great deal to you, I don't think, but a great English author who was intriguing because he wrote books and directed operas and on at least a couple of occasions invented languages, which is not the easiest thing to do. The most famous language he invented was the language that was used uh, by the characters in The Clockwork Orange, which is a book that you may have heard of, and some of the people listening to this may have heard of, and if they haven't, I think it was published in 1961, um, an exceptional book. And Anthony Burgess not only wrote the book, but actually created the language that they used. And so 
Burgess, like the recently deceased Jonathan Miller and others, is one of the unusual polymaths of people that are really world-class experts at more than one thing. And it's so rare. And I've never actually met one. And I've always, well, I mean, I'm intimidated by the idea, but I've always wanted to meet a polymath. So I would take Anthony Burgess or Jonathan Miller would be my two favoured polymaths. I know better than to ask about sports people because one of the great disappointments in my life was when I did actually meet a sporting hero of mine. It was a desperately disappointing experience on, on many dimensions. So I think there's a bit of a be careful what you wish for. Who was that? I'm not saying. Okay, okay. <laughs> that's fine. That's that, would fine. Be, that would be unfair. And has your perception of influence changed over the last year? Yes, I think it has. Um, and it's changed because, mostly because I think about it more. And I think about the fine line between the activation of influence and the commoditization of influence. And I think that the people that set out on their path in order to be an influencer is a kind of tricky path to go down. It's like that category of people that became known as being famous for being famous. Mm. And so let's look at reality TV. Is there, so when you get someone who is on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. But the reason why they're famous, as in I'm a celebrity, the reason why they're a celebrity is because they were on Love Island. And so it's a sort of like a compound famous for being famous. So they weren't famous before they went on Love Island. Now they're sort of famous for being in one of those environments. And now they end up on I'm a celebrity, get out of here. And I do believe that there are some people who have taken the pursuit of the Andy Warhol famous for 15 minutes kind of a bit too far. And as we know from Love Island and some other examples, it hasn't always ended well for people that are in that. And people find it difficult to cope with that stardom because what you do in some areas when you're attempting to become a purveyor or more insultingly a peddler of influence around your own celebrity is you expose yourself to forces that you may be very poorly equipped to deal with. And I think that's very often the case um, in that case. And it's always been true. There was a famous story of a woman in the early 1960s called Vivian Nicholson, who was always spend, 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 they said about her. And she won in those days, there was a thing called the football pools in which you had to guess what the results of soccer matches were. She was in no way equipped to deal with either the money or the fame that went with it. I think on the other hand, and in an incredibly virtuous way. What the current influence economy has done is rewarded people for their enthusiasm and their expertise. So if you are an expert makeup artist or you're an expert woodworker or you're an expert hacker of backpacking travel or an expert anything, then your ability to find an audience because you've got the media channels not, uh, and your ability to leverage that audience to your own gain because of the distribution and access that's created by the world we live in now is fantastic. So the idea that those people can be really, really rewarded, both economically and in other ways, is fantastic. So there's a dark side of influence and celebrity and a very bright, shining side of influence yeah. and, and celebrity. 
on that topic, do you, do you think that people think enough about who they follow? So I'm sure it breaks up into cohorts of people that say, I've got specific interests in interior decoration, for example, and I have a particular love for mid-century Scandinavian design. And these people for sure actually exist. And now I'm going to uh, create a list and open my mind to following a whole bunch of people that are expert in that. And then what happens is those things kind of compound because once you've followed someone, you start looking at who they follow, which then allows you a next grade down. And then in a beautiful world, what happens is you end up with a gorgeous list of the thing you thought you were most interested in. But as a result of being an interest that it turns out that, oh, actually, you know, mid-century Palm Springs, United States is every bit as interesting as mid-century whatever it was. And actually, you know what, I've become interested in brutalist buildings, say, because mm. this person was interested. And so the idea that what of influences opening your mind to other things is, is really good. So I think there's a significant segment of thoughtful users of social media and, and influencer platforms. I'm not quite sure what the expression would be to do that, who actually do it very, very, very thoughtfully. I think there's other people who maybe tend to follow celebrities who are just famous, who find themselves being a member, member of a cohort of followers that allow themselves to be influenced by a, a celebrity in areas that that person has no moral or intellectual authority to be an influencer. And again, we don't, there's no point in naming names, but there are people who have got hundreds of thousands or even tens of millions of followers who are kind of really great at the thing they became famous for and actually not all that great at some of the things that they talk about a bit too freely and they have disproportionate influence um, on their followers and that's kind of not healthy. Now, obviously in today's world, we are all being tracked and that generates massive amounts of data. Do you think there is too much focus on that data? Well, wiser people than me will tell you that there is always a signal to noise ratio in data. Um, what we know is there's lots of noise and extracting the single signal from the noise is the important thing and eliminating false positives in those noises and all of the kind of confirmation bias and other things that exist in those kinds of data sets. So if you are a skilled sourcer, and analyzer and applier of data, data is inestimably valuable, but it's not for amateurs. You, know, you have to know what you're looking at. You have to know uh, what to do. You have to know why you're looking at it too, because there's any amount of data that will tell you stories about dogs biting men. But finding the piece of a data story that shows you the one about the man biting the dog is much harder to get to, and actually and equally much harder to project from. But so finding the things that are out of the ordinary and then determining whether that out of the ordinary thing is useful or not is 
kind of significantly challenging. I think there's a element to the data story now that we weren't talking about when data became a big part of the business um, because it was another thing that the word democratization basically means that what was once mine is now ours or what was once yours is now ours. So that's what happened to publishing when everyone expected things pay for to be free. And equally, when you put your data online, suddenly everyone thought it was okay that once you put your data online to use it, clearly the world is now enmeshed in a much more complex debate about privacy and data usage. And one of the things I encourage people to do is a look at aggregate aggregated data, not individual data. And the second is that when the data does start moving towards things that are more identifiable about people, try and think about it through the prism of what's the data that's most valuable to you and your cause in business that has the least impact and the least negative effect on the person whose data it is. And so instead of trying to say, I suppose the comparison highly appropriate given the, the Brexit talks and the rules, uh, it's much more appropriate to fish with a line and a hook than it is a trawler. Yeah. I, 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 I guess what people are worried about is that they think that when you look too much at data, it stops you from being creative or it makes you miss some part of the psychological aspects. But is there an argument that it that data can make you a better creative? Oh, absolutely. Yes, because what data can do is, uh, so when I think about data, I think about it as much about pattern recognition as I do about anything else. Mm -hmm. And one of the features of pattern recognition is when you find data points that don't fit in the patterns. And sometimes it's the data point that doesn't fit in the pattern that is the big unlock for creativity. The man bites the dog. The man bites the dog, exactly. But you have to decide whether there's a business in men biting dogs or not. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if you look at the work that behavioral economists do, and you look at they certainly look at data, but they're always looking for that counterintuitive thing that I mean their argument would be that people are not optimizes in the economic sense. People do not live their lives in the logical pursuit of optimization of their circumstance. And a lot of economic theory and lots of science that's applied to marketing sort of assumes um, economic optimization in some way or another, but great, great creativity almost pursues the exact opposite. Mm. Okay. Let's go back again to influence okay. marketing. Um, mm. What do you see as the biggest challenges within influence marketing today? Authenticity and scale. So it's very, very important that a brand and its influencers come to peace in a way that says, I, the influencer, will talk about your brand, but I will talk about it 
in my language and my tone to the people who follow me. And I would do it because I have a belief that your brand is at the very least fit for purpose. Mm. The moment the brand owner attempts to influence, the, to affect the tone of the influencer, and the moment the influencer starts working for brands or products in which the influencer does not believe, the road to ruin awaits. Yeah. Because the very premise of what I said before, of the combination of celebrity, authority, relevance, and relatability, as soon as that breaks down in any parts of it, then you have a bad situation in influencer marketing. Yeah, and I guess one issue too is going back to the data. Um, data can only tell you what people do. And within the world of influence marketing, you sort of need a psychology and behavioral science to understand why they do it. Yes. You need to be able to codify the relationship. What, what role do you think psychology plays in influence marketing in the future? Well, understanding the motivation of all of the actors is really, really important. So you need to understand the motivation of the advertiser. You need to understand what the motivation of the influencer is. You need to understand what the motivation of the influenced is. And to me, I'd like just to kind of focus on two words that I mentioned earlier about relevance and, and relatability. Yeah. People do things if they think it's something that kind of actually matters to them in the way they live their lives and it can actually give them some kind of advantage, either physical or financial or psychological. So does it make me richer, better, happier, all of those kinds of uh, things? They will do it more likely if the person that is not encouraging to do or if the, if, the, if the vessel through which that message is delivered is someone who they can believe in because they say, oh, I can understand why this person will have domain expertise in this area. And someone who feels like them. And I think that, you know, we're in an intriguing world at the moment where diversity, equity, and inclusion are a really important part of the way we think about business. And this is a useful filter to think about influence because people want to occupy shared space with influencers and understanding the psychology in any category of what would shared space mean in that context, I think is really important. Now, that's a long, 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 long conversation about how you'd go to um, about defining that, but making people comfortable because the person is relatable is important because then you end up with this kind of intriguing thing about the nature of influences rather than the nature of celebrity endorsers in earlier generations is that influence in the world that we're talking about can be fleeting. So it can be incredibly subject specific over a very short period of time. And actually you could have dozens and dozens and dozens of different influences in your life that are as rich and as varied as all of the things you do. 
in your life. And you'll think very differently about the person who influences you about the choice of wine versus the person that influences you about the choice of exercise equipment versus the person that influences you about apparel or whatever it might be. Because those people would all have a reason to be an influencer in that category or in that part of your life. With you having been in the media industry for so long, I've wanted to ask you this for a long time, but what do you think is needed for the media industry to fully buy into this, this medium? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is, Please stop reminding me how long I've been. I'm in sorry. The yeah, I am aware of, of this. It's not, it's, not, it's not news. But the good news is for those of you not consuming this, it's now March the 3rd today, and I have my first vaccination on March the 17th. So as I said to my, to my girlfriend, we are now the youngest of the old people as opposed to being the youngest of the the oldest of the young people, which is what we've been for the last couple of months. So yes, I have been around, but thanks very much for reminding me. Um, one of the challenges with the media industry that I grew up with is an obsession with scale. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you could reach big audiences really quickly, that you could amortize the cost of creating ads or even paying for celebrity endorsers or FMP across enormous amounts of Media. You could reach large portions of the population very, very simply, and that was great. There's been something of a pivot in that over the time that I've been in the business, and people have gone from the idea that we're going from a mass marketing to a mass personalized marketing situation. And so even whilst kind of reach is harder and harder to deliver and celebrity and other things are harder to amortize across that reach the replacement for that is the idea of a data-driven targeting world and if you look at the world of influencer marketing the only conclusion you can reach is is it doesn't deliver on the massive reach of the old model and it doesn't deal deliver on the apparent precision of the new model so it doesn't conventionally deliver on the scale idea of the marketing that i grew up with nor does it deliver on the data-driven precision of the marketing which has become more popular my sense is that people then need to recalibrate and say instead of so you have you've gone from world that thought it was one times a million to a new world which is a million times one mm. which is a very very different thing where actually the influencer marketing world sort of is, is, is more close to 10,000 times 10,000, if you like. It's those kind of proportions. So in order to manage that, there is a degree to which, having said there's lots of touch and feel and psychological facts involved, we need to find a way of combining those high-touch aspects with some kind of industrialization because we need to be able to ladder up many many groups of intersecting influences from the kind of bullseye of subject matter expertise to the concentric circles of related topics around that expertise to the venn diagram of completely different territories that touch on the territory of influence we're looking at so not just those influences but influences themselves so there's two maps of the spheres of influence 
and the nature of influencers and industrializing them in a way that still respects the psychology components of the art and science is really important. And that, for me, is going to be the thing that unlocks the marketing industry to influencers. Because even though as a business, it's grown exponentially over five years, it's grown from not very much at all to something of meaning, which is very different from it growing to 20% of the money people spend on marketing most bandwidth influencers. It's not like that. So it needs to do that. So what it needs to do is it needs to industrialize craft. Yeah. And if we look forward 10 years, uh, what role do you think influencers will play in our society then? There's a few ways of thinking about that. So if you think about the people that have come to be famous in the internet age because they became famous on the internet, whether it's because they started a YouTube channel or whatever it might have to be, or they built an Instagram following. So there'll be some group of those people that actually survive and will still be around in 10 years' time and will be perhaps highly significant. And the same would be true of the sort of reality TV era. It's, you know, we all know that the the Jenners and the Kardashians have built sort of mini industries out of their celebrity and they will carry on being them. So those people, and there'll be more of them, but in a slightly more granular way, will exist. Now, if there is a situation that in the world, instead of there being a hundred Kardashians, which maybe there are now, but there are a hundred thousand Kardashians at a 50th of the scale of the Kardashians, then I think what people will see is they'll be able to look at any category, any question you could possibly imagine and say, actually, here's 40 people that have really significant reach and influence over car buying decisions. And some of them will be people that really understand cars. Some will be people that really, really understand the environment. Some of them will be people that really understand travel. And they'll be known for that. And people will suddenly realize that as all other media fragments and influence starts coagulating around some of those kind of subject matter influences, if that happens, then influence and marketing could be a huge component of all of marketing. But it needs a set of circumstances to go that way. Yeah. I mean, we get the opportunity to speak to you every single week, uh, but uh, if you could give our listeners uh, any advice, and imagine that these are people from brands, ambitious brands, from media agencies. If you can give them any advice at all, what, what, what would that be? Gosh. Well, I suppose the first piece of advice I would give anyone is to make the time you spend together as precious and as valuable as you can. And that means preparing before you get together participating when you get together and following up when you've been Mm. together. I think that there are and have been in my career too many meetings where the people who did the work and were most invested in the outcome failed to get what they wanted by not sufficiently preparing the other participants for that meeting and the other participants failed themselves 
and the people they worked with by not preparing and not listening in the meeting. And I think that we share space and we share each other's lives, we share each other's ambitions. And if, to go back to the, what's the very first thing I said, that if you turn up interested, then the chances are it will be interesting. And that's every meeting, every call, any job and whatever. And if you're not interested, either don't go or ask the questions in advance to say, why should I be interested and why should this matter be? And don't fear that. Don't just be, as we use the expression, go with the flow. Why go with the flow unless the flow is a positive one? If you're not going to get something out of it and you're not going to contribute, then don't do it. Mm. That would be it. Life's too short. Yeah, before we move along, I, I do want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, we appreciate to, uh, to listen to you every time we speak, but thank you very much for being here. It's, um, it's, it's always good to spend as much time you can with people who are younger and better looking than you are. <laughs> say that. And have much better hair in this particular case. Uh, time to cut it. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a pleasure speaking to you and it's a pleasure working with the team. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And one last question. Uh, and I think I've asked you this question before, but who do you think we should interview next on this podcast? As you probably gathered, I, I really like experts. Mm -hmm. And I think what would be interesting is to find someone who comes from the new world of celebrities. So I try and find a Michelle fan in the beauty and makeup era. I try and find a guy or a woman who was the best user of tools from the Home Depot that I could possibly manage, or even better, I'd go and find someone who worked at B&Q, who B&Q themselves trust to be someone that can really advise people and influence them. So I'd like to be, I think you should, inter should interview someone who is a great influencer in something really special that matters to people. Yeah, that's a good advice. We'll try to find someone. I think you should. All right. Thank you for listening in to the first episode of the Influence Lab. Again, this is where we will talk about influence next time we are going to interview someone, hopefully as interesting as Rob Norman, and we'll talk about what influence is, how it moves, and what it means to our guests. Sign up to our newsletter via our website and follow us on our different social media platforms. Fading hearts and changing weather Some for worse and some for better Stay alive by boxing clever Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed that episode. Please do share and give us a like and head to learn.tailify.com for more content.